You are listening to the Enormo Cast. So what do you approach in your approach shoes? El Cap, the Diamond, the Traps? How about Supercrack Buttress or the Mushroom Boulder in Waco? And what about your mailbox, your job, the local coffee shop? Have you ever approached something scary, awe-inspiring, or heartbreaking in your approach shoes? Or do you walk in beauty like the night of cloudless climbs and starry skies? Climbers do everything from wide cracks to wedding vows in their approach shoes. Not to mention hike, scramble, and lead those last few pitches in the dark. So why not get an approach shoe that can handle it all and look great doing it, like the TX4 from Sportiva. The mighty TX4 approach shoe sports a sticky sole, leather upper, bomber rand, and unbeatable build, as we'd expect from Sportiva. So whether you're bombing up some trail to paradise in the pre-dawn light, or just kicking around town feeling the afterglow, why not approach everything with style in the TX4 from Sportiva? We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that? out. I'll see. You really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is February 25th, 2020, about 10 p.m. here in Colorado. And on today's show, episode 193 of the Enormacast, is a bona fide legende, Mr. George Lowe Third. So this is sort of a bucket list interview. You know, when I started this thing, did I did I imagine that I would sit down face-to-face with some of the true deep legends of the sport, especially of alpinism? No, I didn't. I thought maybe I'd interview some of my friends and we'd have a few yucks. And, uh, you know, it would last a few months. And then like most blogs or things like that at the time, it would just peter out and die. But here I am, some 10 years later, almost, talking to George Lowe, a climber that I've admired. I've followed in his footsteps in many, many cases, he was a great and uh, very important inspiration to my friend Hayden Kennedy, kind of your friend too, actually, if you've listened to the show for a long time. An interesting and truly great climber from an era when a lot of mountaineers and alpinists had just as much acumen and accomplishments in other paths that they were on in other parts of their lives, like intellectual pursuits and career. And some of you might be thinking, Calouse. Which low is George Lowe? Well, we, we get into that a bit in the interview, actually, right in the beginning. But the, uh, the important takeaway is he was cousins to Jeff Lowe, who passed away not too long ago. Great climber in his own right, and also not related to Alex Lowe, 
also a great climber that is no longer with us. However, for you deep historians, he doesn't bring it up, so I don't think he's related to the George Lowe that was on the 1953 Everest expedition resulting in the first ascent. So there you go, the lowdown on the lows. Lots of lows to keep up with. Definitely not involved with the hardware store. Though I wish he was, I'd definitely hit him up for a new hammer drill. Hey Lowe's, shout out for you. Hook me up. And this is a, a pretty solid interview, about an hour, 10 minutes that I got at George's house up above Golden, Colorado. But to uh, frame it for you folks that may not know exactly who George Lowe is, and also we just couldn't even hardly scratch the surface in an hour, 10, uh, I'm going to just run down the greatest hits here for you. First of all, he was putting up 510D in 1965, which he rated 5.9, of course, because that's what you did. And it also was rivaling anything going on anywhere, just about. Did the first winter ascent of the north face of the Grand Teton in 1968. South face of the Devil's Thumb in 1973. The first ascent of the Infinite Spur on Mount Foraker. Legend. Legendary. With Michael Kennedy in 1977. But, uh, but hold on here. I almost missed one. The first ascent of the north face of North Twin in the Canadian Rockies. 1974. Shame on me. But shame on you for not knowing that already. Then, of course, the North Ridge of Latok 1. Talk a bunch about in the interview. 1978. First ascent of the Kangshan Faced on Mount Everest. So he's an Everest summiter. At the time, probably the hardest route on the mountain in 1983 from the Chinese side. A solo ascent of Dwalagiri in 1990. 2015, climb Mount Huntington. He was only 70 years old. No big deal. And just before that, I'm pretty sure that Hima Donini did an attempt on the nose in a day. I think they fell a little bit short of 24 hours or a little bit past 24 hours, but they still did it in a push. Uh, I think Donini was like 70 and George is 69 or something like that. Anyhow, guy's getting after it. Went to Antarctica last year to ski. So not slowing down, this guy, despite some complaints about his body failing him. It's going to happen. So anyway. I wanted to position you guys, you younger listeners, or maybe the folks that aren't so steeped in the lore, for who George Lowe is, why he's important. But that's why you come to the Enormous Cast, isn't it? To get steeped in the lore, the juicy, salty, murky lore. Mmm, lore juice. All right, as Marty DeBergie said, enough of my yakking, let's boogie. When you think about it, is there another gear company so dedicated to outfitting climbers from head to toe as Black Diamond? They've got lightweight modern helmets and headlamps for your pointy head, high performance apparel to wrap that sweet climber bod you've been cultivating, all the way down to their line of advanced climbing shoes for those tender piggies. They've got crash pads for the pad sniffers, the best protection money can buy for the trad dads, ice tools for the masochists. Pitons, haul bags, portal ledges, backpacks, draws, beaners, harnesses, tents, probes, skis, poles, and even the signature Enormacast rhinestone-studded unisex microfleece G-string. Well, no, that doesn't exist yet, despite me stuffing the suggestion box every chance I get. So next time you're shopping for, well, nearly anything a climber could want, honor the generations of weary Black Diamond engineers pouring over AutoCAD in their cubicles when they'd much rather be climbing. 
and go to blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop to see the fruits of their dedicated labor. And remember, Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the Cast. First of all, again, I just did off the mic, but thanks for having me up to your place. It's, I'm, I'm happy to have you here. I mean, it's a comfortable place for me, so that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. And I, I'm kind of on the road, so um, I do these things all over the place. And uh, But down in, in Boulder, it's sometimes tricky to find a quiet place to do it. When we're not in Boulder, we're up in, up above Golden. But uh, again, well, the, the wind that's coming in now may make it difficult here. By well, I don't <laughs> mind. You know, it lends that mountain feel to it all. It, we'll, it can we open a window or something? No. We can open a window. That you, you'd hear the wind <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Um, so I have a, a notorious kind of thing. I talk about how I don't do any research um, for these things, and I didn't totally need to with uh, with your climbing resume. I have a pretty not. A full knowledge of it, but I, I kind of know the greatest hits and um, we have plenty of mutual friends and I've been an admirer. But the other thing that I did this time, which is a little different because I don't always like to tip my tip my hand to the audience, because if I say I'm going to do an interview and then for some reason it doesn't happen, you know, like the weather today is terrible. If I'd have been coming from the West Side, I probably wouldn't have gotten here. But I did this time and I just said, hey, if I were to interview George Lowe, uh, what would you guys want to hear about? I don't know. I got comments into the 40s and basically everything. So it wasn't actually that helpful, but uh, because (laughs) they wanted to know, you know, everything. We'd be here for like two days. We'd have to do it in real time. But yeah, but there was a real big interest in uh, every part of your climbing career. People want to know what you do for a living, which... Uh, from some inside sources, I've been told you can't tell me or else you'd have to kill me or something to that effect. But it's pretty close to that. OK, <laughs> what, uh, uh, what what sort of line of, of uh, thinking are you in in terms of in terms of work? I'm actually, you know, I was trained as a physicist. Oh, okay. I actually got out in cosmic rays. That's when I wrote my thesis on okay. muon showers deep underground at a detector in Park City, Utah, um, and looking at the the dispersion of the muons and trying to get an idea of what the strong force did, the nuclear force was as these very high energy cosmic rays came in in the atmosphere. So, and I haven't done a thing with it since I did, or since I wrote my thesis okay. and I couldn't find uh, a job in academics and I ended up going in system engineering for a little company called ESL, which uh, was run by a guy named Bill Perry, who was also secretary of defense eventually in Bill Clinton's administration, and a really brilliant scientist. And so I ended up getting a lot into fields like digital signal processing, which I sort of learned on my own. And uh, ESL had done a lot of work in areas, and this is in their uh, statements that they put out at the time, for example, on strategic arms limitation for things like the START Treaty, and so you got to get information to make sure the other guys are not cheating. And so I've been in the defense industry, not necessarily in that area, but this one area where ESL published something that I could say that I was involved right. with. Okay. How I was involved, I can't tell you. Right. Okay. So, yeah, that's kind of what I, I sort of guessed um, in terms of just what the kind of things you're working on. And, and um, you know, at all levels, things get get put underground and we don't really hear about them. But, um, but the more important part of that, I think in terms of what we want to talk about is the fact that, you know, you were, you're probably one of, in my estimation, uh, American climbing's most prolific 
alpinists and climbers in terms of first ascents. And I mean, you're you're in the echelon with Becky and all these guys, as far as I'm concerned. He, you're, you're rolling your eyes. People, there's a podcast so you can't see it, but you know, I'm just paying it out as compliments. You know, and yet you you had this you know established and obviously deep career. Um, you had a family, have a family rather, and uh, raised a family. So I, one of the questions that kept coming up was about that sort of balance. So at some point in this, I don't know if it's time to talk about that right now until we talk about your climbing, but uh, that that's something that people were really interested in, and it it feels a little bit old school. Uh, there were so many mountaineers and and alpinists and stuff of, of your generation that did go on to have these highly intellectual careers. You know, were you inspired by other or other people or in terms of that, or was it just life decisions that just seemed like a normal thing to do both? Well, both things. I mean, look at people like Tom Hornbein, who had an incredible uh, career professionally, and he, you know, was a driver between, behind the West Ridge on Everest. And he did a lot of the first ascents, and he's continued to be active in the Alpine Club and still is active. He's, he's retired from his profession, but he's still doing things. Or Lou Reichardt. Uh, there, are other, there are a number of other people. Right. You know, Lou, exactly. Lou has done some, you know, new routes on Everest and K2 and Nongadevi. That's not bad. Right. <laughs> so, and Lou is an incredible neurobiologist. And on top of that, and he has a delightful family. All of these kids are, they go to places like Yale and Harvard. And, and you know, he's he's uh, the type of person that I've admired as is Tom Hornbein. And these were the sort of people that I would have considered, well, Lou is almost a contemporary. He's not much older than I am. Uh, and Lou has this vast breadth of knowledge. I went to Asia with him to climb Everest. And, you know, he knew everything about the Tibetan culture. And that was, I'm not everything, but he was incredibly knowledgeable. And I just have admired people like that who can manage to do both things. Another guy is Henry Kendall. And, you know, I'm in, I'm in the Henry Kendall Society in the Union of Concerned Scientists because I have a lot of concerns as a scientist about what ha- is happening to our environment. And I think it's terribly important that we try to bring those scientific facts to the public and hopefully take advantage of the expertise these people have. So these sort of things have driven me. And I, you know, I'm still working at age 75, half time. And it's not necessarily, be, I'm not certainly not as productive as I was, but I'm not as productive a climber as I was, but I still like it. And it keeps my mind, it's just like training my mind and, and I still climb uh, because I need to train my body. If you want to, if you want to be productive all your life, it's nice to be able to do these things. So, and I, you know, I still love getting out climbing. I don't climb like I used to, but I have maybe more fun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not driven by, I obviously am not climbing what I'd climbed years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. I think we'll keep that on the plate, uh, this idea of this balance as we, as we talk a little bit about um, your actual climbing. And one other kind of little bit outside question that I wanted to get straightened out and People sort of half-jokingly ask this question, but uh, the, can you explain the lows to me? Who's who? Who's related? And, uh, yeah, let's just get that straight because even at my, you know, knowledge of the sport, I'm like, okay, I don't remember how they're related, but I know Alex is not related to you. Yeah, well, you're related I, to the other ones. Alex, in my mind, has superior genetic material. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex was a... Right. In addition to being an incredibly gifted climber and a really, uh, he was delightful to climb with, he was also very gifted intellectually. I mean, mm-hmm. he, 
you know, he's a mathematician and he he had a lot of other skills as well. And he chose to put more of his energy in climbing, mm -hmm. but he is totally unrelated. Right. Then I had my brother Dave who did uh, a fair amount of climbing and Jeff who's everybody knows right. who's a cousin okay and greg who's basically behind the original low alpine systems and very inventive guy and was climbing 512 back in 1965 or something like that and in ogden he's sort of not well known but he was an incredibly good climber uh and mike who uh i did a lot of climbing within the, all all of these are cousins who were sons of my uncle ralph and of course they all set age records respectively, on climbing the, the youngest climber to climb the Grand Teton. Okay. So I, I do come from a climbing family. My, you know, I climbed the Grand with my, with my father and my son many years ago uh, when my father was about 65 and my son was about 11. I, you know, so we, we sort of runs in the family. I climbed the Grand Teton as my first peak with my cousin Mike and my two brothers, John and Steve. So the whole family's been active in the out of doors, not necessarily in climbing. We do, did a lot of river running when I was growing up. I mean, I think probably, I've probably been through the Grand Canyon six or seven times back in the days when permits were not a big issue. Right. So uh, the families between my dad and my uncle Ralph, we, we did a lot of things. We did a lot of things together and it was been a lot of skiing together. Mm -hmm. So, and so like Jackson area and the Wasatch, is that where you're from? Is that where the family's well, based? I, I grew up in Ogden. And okay, okay. The other, cool. the other Lowe's, as we called them, and they, of course, called us the other Lowe's, <laughs> they only lived probably two kilometers away or okay. so. And so as we could walk back and forth through places, and we just did a lot of things together. Right, right. Yeah, because your name's all over the Wasatch for, um, you know, for climbing. And well. the Wasatch was sort of the yeah. place that I, I, I mean, I didn't start climbing there, but I... Uh, well, I did in some sense to be as a, my uncle Ralph took us out bouldering when he was training his kids to climb the Grand Teton and put a rope on us. So I had some interdiction mm -hmm. there. But uh, the Wasatch is where I really started rock climbing seriously. And then the Tetons are sort of my home mountain range because they're the closest mountain range in terms of, you know, they have significant uh, peaks mm -hmm. uh, other than the Wasatch. And the Wasatch has great climbing. And great skiing. Right. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, you know, uh, as an evolution of, you know, growing up this way, it, it seemed natural then to just continue on to sort of, you know, quote unquote, the greater ranges as, as uh, you know, I think Chenard put it at some point in a, in a long essay it was, you know, obviously you didn't have probably any resistance of the tip. I hear a lot of the typical thing of like, well, you know, this is all fun, but it's time to buckle down and, and become a real person. You know, what was your evolution out of being a kid and getting brought up stuff by your uncle and, and your dad maybe to kind of finding your own way in the mountains? Well, I originally went down uh, to college in, in uh, Southern California. I'd been skiing 40 times a winter at, at home and, you know, done some amateur ski racing. Right. I was on a high school ski team, this sort of thing. Our whole family skied a lot. And I went down to Harvey Mudd, and it was right in the middle of Claremont and the center of the smog. And I hated it, frankly, in terms of the environment. And I wasn't prepped for it because the high school I went to was not great. And so all these prep kids had come in, 
And so I was struggling at college and I, I hated being in Claremont. And these crazy people were going rock climbing and it, but they were getting out of the city. And so I started climbing, you know, actually climbing rocks there and uh, uh, places like Big Rock and Talkeets. And then after two years at Harvey Mudd, I decided I, I just, uh, I wasn't doing very well. I moved to the University of Utah and then, boy, you have all the little Cottonwood Canyon, right. big Cottonwood Canyon. And, and it's all really close and you can do it after class or before class. And it just was a great area to really expand. And we were very fortunate. There was a little climbing club called the Alpenbach, which climbed out of there. And I sort of joined them and they'd done a number of first ascents. And I sort of got into this going climbing. Oh, there's a new line. Let's go try that. So. And what, what about, about, give me a time frame. Well, this Not is, exactly. This is, years. well, uh, I started climbing probably end of 64 in the Wasatch and, and 65 type things. And there were some people doing some winter mountaineering there as well. Uh, I had a really good climbing partner that, that uh, died on, on an early climb. We were attempting in Little Cottonwood Canyon in 1965, uh, just after I'd come back from Europe for my first real alpine adventure. And... Uh, who I did quite a number of first descents of with in uh, Little Cottonwood Canyon. So uh, what was his name? Mark McQuarrie. Okay. Uh, and it was just high school, basically right. getting out of high school. Right. A bright young kid, a lot of promise, a little bit. Wasn't doing great in school, but I think climbing climbing has helped a lot of people. As a lot has hindered a lot of people. <laughs> in yeah. Terms of, but you know. It, I mean, I hear that I, I luckily, you know, with this pro- program, I hear the I hear that story more, the good story more than the bad story, because I never end up talking to the bad story. But uh, <laughs> I mean, because they're not in climbing anymore. But uh, the good story. Yeah, it, it really is. And especially, I think, if you went back to that far, I mean, it was it was a big draw as as still a subculture and a counterculture to a certain it, extent. It was. I mean, yeah. it was, I used to know everybody who climbed in Salt Lake. Right. It was, it was it was a nice small community. It yeah. was great. So you talk heats. I mean, Southern California. You know, if you sort of lump in, uh, I mean, even even like Earl Robbins and stuff was from from down there. You know, yes. learning, learning yes. his way at at yep. uh, Stony Point and stuff like that. Oh, I so, climbed at Stony Point too. Yeah, I, <laughs> so have I. It's probably a little different than when you were there, but um, it's pretty urban even. Yeah, there. <laughs> okay. There's still broken glass everywhere. Yes. Uh, okay. You got it. <laughs> um, you know, you climbed a little bit at Takits, or at least in our lore, our mythology, we think of that place as kind of this very advanced area for rock climbing. And I don't, you know, we don't, at least in the 60s, lump the Wasatch in. Did you find that you you sort of brought any new ideas back to the Wasatch or, or weren't, weren't you there long enough? I, to like I wasn't there long enough. I, mean, I learned, I really learned when I was going to school in Southern California. And, you know, this is back in the days of soft iron pitons. Right. So it was, it was quite different. I did take one long fall in Takeets when I had a soft iron piton pull. You know, we were, we were pretty incompetent. Right. Because uh, the, the training wasn't really, you know, I can't remember when Blaine, the leader, came out and all, all these sort of safety buckets that came out of partially the old Sierra Club rock climbing sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, did, uh, I did see some of these things, and I can't really, you know, my memory's not good enough to bring out those details. Yeah. But I really, I didn't really start pushing 
my own limits. Well, I'd push my own limits down there, but wasn't pushing my own limits where they're really where close to, well, I'm not sure they ever got up to standards of 1910 when, you know, what's his name, All Perry Smith, Oliver Perry Smith was climbing in Europe and climbing 510. Right. <laughs> you know, we thought the hardest thing was 5'9". Right? Yeah, but half of your 5'9s are like now 5'11". So nah. <laughs> <Let's>, <laughs> It's 5'11". I, I can't climb it. Okay, I never well, have that was the, that's <laughs> the problem with your grading system. Um, anybody who's climbed anywhere on old 5'9s, you're like, oh, God. This is only 5'9 because they just didn't think we didn't the, know. the number could go any higher. You, you, that's right. That <laughs> yeah. was a, that was I mean, a mathematically, the, there was a problem. Yeah, well, yeah, right. I had a little bit of that. And, you know, I would have preferred Ortenberger's system where they did an F1 through as far up as you wanted to go. Right. Because the five doesn't, the old Sierra Club five class doesn't really mean anything anymore. Right. But in any case, uh, it, you know, it works. It doesn't matter. But there was a lot of that. When I was climbing a little cottonwood, there was not very much communication with the rest of the climbing world uh, in terms of, you know, experiencing other places. And we were pushing things that were harder than we'd climbed. But, you know, 5.9 was the hardest thing we knew about. Right. So it was 5.9. And, and maybe we thought we were exaggerating there. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Um, but you don't know. Right. You know, you it, know. it wasn't. Yeah. I don't think any of it was deliberate sandbagging. It was just... Yeah. You know, don't well, I mean, know. it was like, you know, we have this connectivity now, you know, knowing about, I mean, everything that goes on within hours of it happening, literally. But uh, I mean, it's uh, there was it definitely was these these sort of little laboratories, you little know, separated yeah, laboratories. And the, right. the Wasatch was one of them, maybe not as famous, but uh, certainly now that, you know, we're, everything's caught up and we know what's going on. It was certainly I mean, you, the whole low clan came out of there and started changing climbing all around the world. At least a few of you guys did. So it was certainly a fervent laboratory. It was. As and, anywhere else. And we had great resources yeah. with, with, you know, rock. And it, 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 I, was, I felt so fortunate right. to go up in those days when, you know, basically only the Grand Teton and, and the Tetons had been climbed in the winter. And right. uh, all these new routes in the Wasatch. And... Lots of new routes to be done in the winter. I mean, you just make go to a piece of rock and say, "Ooh, that's a pretty line. Let's go climb it." Right. And you know, it was the first ascent. Right. And it was, yeah. you know, feel very fortunate. So as you're coming up, and and you know, you said you went over to Europe, and and probably I'm going to make a guess that like you're you're sort of steeped in the lore. Or, or or were you, like, in terms of, Well, like, moderately. You right. know, I read the Red Buffalo books right. and those sorts of things. But I was really fortunate when I went to Europe in 1965. I was staying in Snell's campground, which was just a squalid group of tents where there was not very good control of the sanitation. And, you know, it was it was fairly... Fairly squalid, and but I met all these British climbers. You know, Chris Jones. So I ended up doing a lot of climbing. Nick Ex- Escort, Mick Burke, uh, Mike Kosterlitz, who won a Nobel Prize in in physics, <laughs> physics or math. Yeah, later I, mean, I was just whoa, where did this come from? And I was very fortunate. I got in with these people, and they were more, much more aware in Chamonix of what. Uh, what could and could not be done or where the standards of the day were. And that's right. the first time that I ever really 
had a perspective, but I'm not sure even there I was figuring out what was going on in terms of the relative grades of rock climbs and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I just got in with a really good group of people. And then despite the fact we had a really bad weather season, they called it the green winter that time, I managed to get up a lot of roots. And, mm-hmm. and it was enormous, you know, enormous jump from being sort of a rock climber to becoming an alpinist. So this is 1965, is that what you yes. said? And you're what, like 18? Oh no! I think 20. I was. I think I was twenty or twenty-one. Okay, all right. <laughs> twenty-one. So, yeah, yes. just old. Yeah, already Get, over, getting yeah. old. Yeah, I mean but that's <laughs> sort of. And you, this was like on a, a holiday from like a summer I t- from I university. I took the summer off okay. from the, between. Yeah, right. yeah, from yeah. the university. Uh, and I, and I had you know it was a fabulous summer, and I, I managed to explore some of the rest of Europe. But I basically camped out in Chamonix the whole summer, and we just waited. Till the weather forecast in the Bar National area was semi-good, because you didn't ever know how good the weather right. forecasts were, and went to try to find a, find a climb. And how did you feel like, you know, again, coming from this laboratory, as I called it, uh, a little bit isolated, although you're climbing on the Teton, too, and, and that sort of stuff. How did you feel like your skills measured up to some of these uh, these folks that you met there, these, you know, that who went on to have you know, also incredible climbing well, careers? I, it was interesting. I didn't feel, I mean, initially they had a lot more, certainly a lot more ability to judge what was going on in the mountains than I did because they'd been there before. Right. And there were some, you know, some people like Boddington and people like that and Willens who were dropping by the campground occasionally. So I saw some of the, the quote, big stars. But I think actually the the people I was climbing with from Great Britain were as, as good as any of the climbers in Britain. I was really fortunate to fall in with these guys. And I think we were climbing on reasonably comparable levels mm-hmm. uh, by the end of the season. We, by the end of the, you know, I did, I did the Benati Pillar, for example, with Chris Jones, before, unfortunately before, I mean, I did it, and now it's unfortunately fallen away. Right. <laughs> uh, and did a number of climbs like that, and we even tried to do the uh, Central Pillar Frenet, and we got really high on it, but, you know, it was trying for a second ascent, and we knew what had happened to Bonatti a few years ago, and his crew and all these people had died, and we got up to a couple pitches from the top right at the crux. Weather was still starting to creep in a little bit, and we were scared, and we turned around. Turns out it, was, it would have been good enough to finish it because we bivouacked quite low on the climb. On the way down, we managed to go all the way up to the, the crux and probably could have finished it in a day mm-hmm. but it was one of those things you see the weather coming in you know people like Benati who is incredibly well known had nearly died there and you say yeah I think can we go down right yeah and, again you know, another day. And, well, that's, and, and, and that to a great extent I'm, I'm not as good as I should have been in deciding when to turn around but it's it's a lot more important to keep climbing and enjoying it than than perishing it, you know, and being foolish. And I think the other thing that's really, I was very fortunate in terms of growing up is that I, I just sort of went through the apprenticeship process in a fairly seamless way, going, you know, from rock climbing to some, some stuff in the Tetons to, to going to Chamonix and learning how to alpine and alpine climb and handle ice. It was relatively primitive gear at the time, you know, mm-hmm. you didn't have curve all the all the ice axes had straight right. picks and so on like that. But uh, going through that whole process of learning 
so you are not pushing yourself so far beyond your limit that you get yourself in trouble. You know, it's just like when I was talking to Uli uh, Steck a couple of years ago and uh, about Annapurna. Now, I'm not, I have questions about whether he actually did it, but he talked very carefully about the fact that he didn't think he could do that sort of thing again because he was way too close to the edge. And, you know, you have to, as you extend your skill level, that you can get closer but you've got to be fully aware of the consequences. And of course, today you can do, you can push it a lot harder because you have better knowledge. You know, the weather forecasts right. are, in, you know, Chamonix and our weather forecasts were a joke. In 1965. <laughs> in 1965. You just yeah. looked up into the sky, right? Well, yeah. no. I mean, it might do reasonably well right. 12 hours in the future. Or, right. or and, 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 you know, you could sometimes predict good streaks, but it wasn't great. Whereas now... You know, people fly from here to Patagonia and go climbing based on a weather forecast, right. which is wow. And so that's enabled people, in my mind, to push a lot harder now because if you can go really light, you can go really fast. But if you get caught out in really light, you could die. And, you know, from my perspective, I don't think I'll be a successful climber unless I die from some other cause other than climbing. Right. Because it's not important whether you get to the summit, it's important that you come back. And so I I was just very fortunate. I ran into a really good group of people mm -hmm. over those years, and they were at skill levels sort of comparable to mine, and they really worked. Right. I think a lot, a lot of it's luck. Yeah, well, the Alpine, yeah, it's a lot of it does end up being luck. And, yeah. I mean, you probably consider yourself pretty lucky considering – you know, just that matter of odds of being out there as much as you've been out there over the years. Well, they can I, just literally right. catch up with you. That's right. I mean, you see so many of these guys who, when you really expose yourself uh, on a, uh, even a daily basis, the odds that you're going to die in the mountains goes up. And the depending, you know, rock climbing, sport climbing, probably not much you can do that all the time. And if you are always watching what you're doing, I think the risk is pretty low. You step up to alpine climbing and the range like the Tetons. Well, today's weather forecast, probably not too much worse, but you have odds, you know, higher odds of rock fall. All, uh, you know, you do have weather things. All these things change. And you go to the Himalayas where you have altitude and, and much higher objective yeah. danger. Seracs. Seracs, all those types of things. Your odds of dying in the mountains go up, and you have to be more conservative if you want to have what I call would call a successful career. You want to be more conservative about your approach to the to the peaks. So uh, it meant that uh, you know when we were on Latak One, we took a a whole. We had seventeen days of food. Well, we had enough that stuff that we were going to survive if there's some big storms and we did and people who are going up uh, like a lot of people are going these days who go incredibly light I think you're you're skating a little bit close to that edge and and, and you did that enough times probably could get to you yeah I mean I actually kind of wanted to I was just thinking about late talk because when, when we talked about luck and you were talking about having a the wherewithal to get to the edge but not go over it I 
right away in my head, I feel like that's a, a place where you guys, you either went over the edge and lucked out or, you know, got as close as, as many things I can think of in your career. So that was in what, 1977 or so? 78. 78. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe a culmination, it's kind of just this natural thing to climb harder things, climb bigger things. It seems like it's just part of like the archetype of what you do as an alpinist. And so you guys get to that and can you maybe just, uh, I have actually never talked about it really that specifically on, on the podcast, even though, you know, Jim's been on, Danini's been on. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Danini, you, you, Jeff, Jeff Lowe, and then Michael Michael Kennedy. Kennedy. Yeah. And so I've had Jim on, we didn't really talk too specifically about it. I've talked in private with Michael about it, but you know, it's, it's seen as this kind of wild moment in alpinism now, you know, the quote unquote magnificent failure. I don't know if you've we ever, wouldn't have, we wouldn't yeah. it wouldn't be nearly as well known if we'd succeeded exactly I mean that's something I think Jim might have said as well and maybe it's Michael said it to me but but yeah and and can you explain maybe leading up to that and what it what you guys tried to do and why it seemed so radical well or was it in your mind I guess I didn't think it was that radical in the sense that we took a lot of gear, we right. took a lot of ropes, we moved slowly, we did a capsule style. And, you know, I'd sort of evolved from the winter mountaineering in the Tetons, which is a pretty high standard. It gets really cold and it gets okay. really windy. And, you know, I climbed through storms uh, on the West Face with Jeff Lowe, for example. We did the right. first winter set of the West Face, the Grand Teton. That, that's a really good prep. And then I'd been to the Canadian Rockies and I'd done North Twin. And North Twin was probably closer to the edge than I ever was. Oh, we got to go back to that uh, too. <laughs> ever than I ever was on Latok. Okay. And I think I was probably closer to the edge on with Michael Kennedy on uh, the Infinite Spur on Foraker. Was that before Latok or that was after? That was before. Oh, it was before. Yes. Okay, so see, my timeline's was sort messed of, up. It's just, yeah. you sort of build your skill set and your understanding of where you're going in the mountains. I mean, it's if you look at it logically, you know, uh, the Tetons had the really very cold conditions and, and fairly big roots, and then the Canadian Rockies are the next step up from that. And then Alaska is obviously the next frontier. And again, everything's unclimbed. It was just, it was a fabulous time to be a, it was a golden age. Mm -hmm. uh, the peaks have been all summited, but, you know, there are very few roots on them. And, you know, Michael and I just had, two, we just had two because Jeff had broken his ankle on, uh, on Hunter. So we had, had, you know, we had to get him off that. And after Michael and I finished off Hunter, we said, well, what are we going to do? We can climb the Cassine Ridge, which we figured was, well, we could probably do this no problem. Or we'd try the Infinite Spur. And we decided we'd try the Infinite Spur. And we went fairly heavy by today's standards. Uh, which meant that we were able to sit out a couple quite big storms. But if one of the storms had lasted a week, we might not have made it. And it was, you know, you were, you're 3,000 meters up at the summit of, from the base of the climb, and you've, you've got a big storm there, you'll be in trouble, 2,500 meters sand, the Hanging Glacier. If, if that storm that came in had lasted two weeks, probably wouldn't have made it. I mean, they don't usually last that long, but right. they can't. Uh, and so that was the sort of logical progression of how you 
you don't push that close to your limit till you, till you know about it. And your limit keeps extending because your skill set gets greater in terms of evaluating the weather, evaluating the terrain, how far you can get in a day, how much sleep you need to have, what sort of food, you know, the stove technology we're improving, mm-hmm. we had hanging stoves, all those sorts of things make a big difference. In our live talk, we had something the equivalent to the Bibber tent that you know, my cousins had made through low alpine systems. And, you know, our equipment was getting a little bit better, and we were getting better in terms of our judgment. And so... Latok didn't have any really hard climbing. <laughs> it didn't. I'm not, not, not laughing at you. Just, yeah. It the was, listenership just was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it was hard, right, right. but it was never like I thought I was. Super tech, yeah. I didn't think I would. I didn't ever feel like I was right on the edge of taking a long fall. Sure. Or even a short fall. And we just didn't fall. And there were some places under the the Cornest Ridge that bothered me in terms of objective hazard. But temperatures happened to be reasonable on the days we were there, so we weren't getting any melting causing mm-hmm. uh, for the cornices to come off. And so, and we stayed well away from them. So, if Jeff hadn't got sick in the high camp, I think we might have had reasonable odds. Certainly, finishing the pillar, mm-hmm. I think we would have finished. I mean, we were only, you know, 100 meters from the top of the pillar or so. That's incredible. But he got sick. Well, you got to get everybody down. That's right. more important. And the nice thing about it is that I think at that point in time, Michael and I were probably in a little bit better physical condition than Jim in terms of the impact of the altitude and everything. I suspect we could have gotten to the top of the pillar if not to the summit of the peak because the weather wasn't horrendous it was mm-hmm. just bad okay <laughs> uh well but the winds were really right, high which right. is a big driver it was snowing and mm-hmm. you know it wasn't nice but it, <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't really bad right but jeff was i mean he he was clearly very very Hypo- you know, hypoxic. Right. And he, his face was blue. And you, you, you can't leave somebody and go to the summit and hope, hope that they will get better at altitude. Right. You just have to go down. That right. was the right thing for us to go down because we needed all the, all the energy we had to get him down alive. And that was the important thing. Sure. We all came back. We're still friends. We love getting out together until Jeff died, of course, right. but, yeah. you know. Uh, I mean, still two, three decades of climbing was, together. Happens. Right. It was, it was, I mean, yeah, it was a lot of repels, but, you know, you take four days to do 80 repels. It's not that far <laughs> <laughs> each day. And, and because we had, I mean, we were very short on food, right. but we had enough food mm-hmm. despite the fact we have some big storms that we could get down. And yeah, we were really hungry when we got down, but, but we were okay. Right. You know, it wasn't like we were totally depleted. I don't think we were that close to the edge on that particular thing, except for Jeff getting sick. And the other nice thing about it is we had fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was such a glorious place to be. So I was not gonna, there to yeah, all the time. Right. I was going <laughs> to ask you kind of a like a question about um, you know seventeen days. That's how long you were up there. No, long? we were up there twenty six. Okay, days. Okay, twenty six. Twenty six or twenty eight. Something. Seventeen like, like turned around or 
But um, nevertheless, 17 days of food. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. 17 days of food. Is your intellect or your sort of emotional landscape of your of, of, of the way you operate? Do you find that Do you have any tricks in terms of this just getting through and day to day to day being up and, and on that level of commitment? Well, again, it wasn't the level of commitment in terms of what I was having to do each day. Right was not that high. I mean, there were long runouts. Mm -hmm. There were, you know, we we're climbing mixed ground where you would long time, you know, long distance between pieces in, in some cases. I remember being out 20 or 30 meters in one case. And it wasn't easy climbing, but I wasn't worried. You know, it felt controlled. And the, the nice thing about the ruse, it mostly sheds to the side. Sure. You're on a ridge, so you're probably getting rockfall is... It, or icefall is greatly reduced by that. And so I just, I didn't think at the time, because we had, we're going slowly capsule style, we had enough back reserves that I, I never felt terribly uncomfortable until Jeff got sick. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I felt terribly uncomfortable. One of the people who posted on Facebook actually quoted you from an uh, article of Mountain Magazine. The quote, and I, I may have messed it up when I read it, wrote it down, but this is essentially it. It says that you said, uh, bigger, harder with fewer people does not necessarily imply better, um, and that you weren't exactly sure that the, 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 what you had done had sort of justified the risk. That kind of philosophy follow you through, through climbing in terms of as this you, you commented on like this lighter, faster thing, this lighter, faster thing. And it sounds like you have a little bit of what's the word I'm looking for. You're a little circumspect about, about its, you know, the direction that it, it went. I have been uncomfortable with some of the deaths we've had recently. Okay. I mean, really. I was Pakistan when Kyle and Scott okay. disappeared. Uh, they just got up on the climb when we reached base camp, and I flew in the helicopter, and I found it. You know, they'd gotten really light uh, to the point that they weren't carrying Jumars. They, they didn't have any radio communication. I don't know whether they had the ability to get, get weather, uh, which you can do these days. Um, I'd never go on something like that without having weather these days. Mm -hmm. because I... I, I I mean, I believe in using the tools that you have available, and I have lost too many young friends. And and I, you know, uh, I've lost a lot of my older friends. I mean, you know, Nick, Nick Escort disappeared. Mick Burke disappeared. The people I climbed with in Chamonix and in the, in the Himalaya. And so, in that sense, I very, very much agree with, what I was saying there, that bigger is not necessarily better. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the experience I had on Everest in 83 with the, with the team that we have was, uh, I didn't think our, I mean, you can't anticipate effects of altitude as well as you might. Uh, we had a superb team that really got along and everybody worked to getting everybody up the mountain and that was the goal. And, you know, we we had, still have a reunion every five years. It's kind of like the old KT2 team got together, and we're still wonderful friends. And and so that big mountain experience, despite the fact we did fixed ropes and all that sort of right. stuff, 
is a glorious place to be, and with the technology that I'm not even sure that people could do it alpine style today, given the difficulty of the climbing on the lower buttress. But it will be done someday. People right. always get better, you know. Right. They always get better, which is great. But I, so some of these big things, Latok and, and Everest were great. And one of the things is you have to learn to turn around. You have to be so aware. And you know, I was on K2 with Steve Swenson and Alex Lowe at the high camp in 1986 on the North Ridge. And I worked a little bit too hard fixing line to get back across to the high camp. Above the Hanging Glacier, there's a steep traverse there. I'd fix some line. And I got back to the tent. I didn't feel very good. I wakened in the middle of the night. And I could just hear a little bit of rasping in the bottom of my lungs. I said, I'm going down. And Steve said, oh, I've seen pulmonary edema before. You're doing fine. You're, you're talking fine. You're not, you've got plenty of energy. I said, I'm going down. I can hear it. Uh, it's, it's not right. And he and Alex went for the summit the next day, and I went down as soon as I awakened and recognized that I had it. And that was right. one advantage. We did have some fixed ropes, and I met Catherine Fur in the next camp. She wasn't feeling good either. We had some oxygen. We breathed a little bit of the oxygen, and then we just headed down. I got down to 17,000 feet that day. And that took care of the pulmonary edema, and the doctor said I had it. Well, you got to know... You got to get the experience with all those, all that time that you've spent in the mountains to recognize what your body's doing, and recognize when you're pushing yourself over the limit. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I I can't claim that I'm not lucky, but I've tried to be careful, right? Because I've. I don't want to miss another 30 years of climbing. <laughs> right, exactly. That's <laughs> a good way fun. to think about it, right. <laughs> well, you know, there seems to always be a, a, a discussion about ego, sort of ego-driven climbing. It's it's kind of both seen, I think, as sort of there's a good and a bad. Like the good is that you you know you have to have ego to think that you can climb something that's never been climbed before. You're the person who, even if somebody else failed, I can do it, even if they failed. Um, the bad part is when it's really driving a lot of what you do to the point of crossing lines. Do you think that you've had a pretty good relationship with with that idea of, you know, wanting to succeed at all costs or even like a trip to, to K2? I mean, I think there's an influence when you're just, I've put so much effort into getting to this point. Why don't I go that extra 150 meters on, on late talk or why don't, you know what I mean? There's all these influences. So what where's your philosophy with that or have you ever been caught out you think by by some of those influences that maybe you regretted afterwards i probably more likely get caught out by it now because i'm not judging how rapidly i'm declining <laughs> okay <laughs> uh by the way uh when alex and steve got to within maybe 150 or 200 meters of the top and they saw the storm coming they came down they came down that was the year that everybody died on the other side. Okay. And so, once again, the climbers, I've been very fortunate to go to these people who say, hey, it doesn't matter if I get to the summit. Right. And, yeah, it'd be really nice for my ego. And, and But I, you know, again, it's so important to come back. But getting back to the ego thing, yeah, I'm, I'm egotistical to some extent. But, you know, I'm, I've never been a really good climber i've been very determined and i've been you know i've been able to conceive of how things can 
conceivably be put together, but I'm not technically a great climber. Never have been. Never climbed 512 in my life. Hardly ever climbed 511 in my life. I have managed to get up a couple of 511s, but I just don't climb it that I, you know, I'm not that good of an athlete. But I'm predetermined, and I think I can make fairly reasonable decisions. And I was insecure growing up because I was, you know, one of these dorks. Still am a dork <laughs> in terms of a geek, however you want yeah, to call it. Climbing is well populated with. with well, uh, it has people, been, though. but yeah. less so now. I yeah, think yeah, it's more athletic. And yeah, sure. it, and you know, I had I was getting a lot of satisfaction out of other things in my life. It didn't matter, you know, if if, if I put together. Uh, in recent years, I've put together some things at work that I think really made a difference to what uh, I was trying, our project was trying to do. Right, the goal. Well, yeah. that, that feels as good or maybe even better, you know, getting to the top of an unclimbed peak. We've done something that hasn't been done before that's technically hard to do, mm-hmm. and it's made a difference to our country. And so that's important to me, too. And and, you know, I have a family to come back to. And, you know, uh, my kids are really important to me. Mm-hmm. And my the one ex that's still alive is a good friend. And it's important you come back. And you don't, you know, peop- I've seen what the, the significant others of climbers who've died. I mean, it has enormous impact on them. And... and it's just it's it's not fair to them either. It's not fair to you, and so I think it's terribly important that you recognize that you know it's just a mountain, uh, and if you get your ego so so tied to succeeding in the mountain, you're going you that, that isn't a way good, good way to live your life. It's no. important to achieve. Don't misunderstand me, but it shouldn't be driven. You know, I have to do this so much better than anybody else. Right? Are you having a good time? You know, Alex, uh, who's the best climber in the world? You know, it's the guy who's having the most fun, uh, was his reply. Well, I'm not sure that's completely true, but, but it's, a, it's a very good thought to keep in mind mm-hmm. because climbing is most of the time, not always, I mean, I've suffered a lot, <laughs> been joyful. Right. It, it's fun to solve the problems, just like it's fun to solve the problems at work uh, and solving the problems gives me a lot of gratification. The fact I didn't finish the, I mean, I think I finished in terms of the solving the problem. I'd finished LATOC. I didn't get to the summit. Don't get credit. Don't care. I mean, I would like to have done it. Don't misunderstand me. But uh, we did the best we could have done under the circumstances. That's good enough. You can't do better than that. So, (laughs) I... I think it's a little bit too ego-driven on these people who, but that's my opinion. Right. What about, uh, you know, what about like the entrance of, of, you know, heavy sponsorship career kind of driven climbing? Is that ever, uh, the idea of that ever bothered you or, or do you feel like it has an undue influence on anything? I do. Right. And, uh, I was fortunate that I had an adequate income that I could go on these trips. You know, it's not that I didn't get money from people. Uh, you know, the trips weren't terribly expensive in a lot of cases. I, mean, I think Latak was $8,000 or something like that, which is cheap as the Dickens. But uh, 
when you have to do something to keep your sponsor happy, I'm just, I'm so fortunate that I never had to do that. I could decide what I wanted to do, not what I thought they wanted me to do. I am exceptionally happy that I was never driven by that. I didn't have to make that. I, you know, I'm an amateur climber. That's that's the joyful way to climb or ski or or whatever. You make decisions about what seems right for you. So let me ask you a couple of questions. You sort of, I think, half jokingly, you've already about like, well, what are we going to talk about? You know, some of the things I've forgotten. Um, <laughs> and that's, I mean, that you can you can sort of chalk that up to age, but uh, I've I've forgotten so many things that I've climbed. But um, is there a climb or or a situation or whatever, an experience that maybe we don't know about as like history buffs of George Lowe's name on that you could think of that that like strikes you as maybe a perfect climb or a perfect moment or um, or even a perfect partnership? Maybe the best day I ever spent in the mountains, wasn't really in the mountains, is when I climbed the nose with Alex Lowe. And neither of us had climbed it. It was an on-site back in the 90s i can't even remember the year mm-hmm. and alex obviously is a much better climber than i am and we just walked up to the, to the thing early in the morning not really having and we studied the route to some extent and we climbed it and alex was so exuberant and joyful being there and the feeling of moving rapidly up that those incredible dihedrals up high on him it was just one of those days that oh my god can it get this good ever again? Just because the climbing, it was it was just pure fun. And doing it with Alex because he was the best climber in the world because he was having the most fun. Mm-hmm. It was it was just a delightful day. And, you know, we got back before it was dark. And Alex, of course, wanted to go climb some god-awful 511D+. plus. Uh, can't remember on one of the domes the next day. Fortunately, uh-huh. we got lost driving to the campground <laughs> <laughs> and didn't get up early enough to do it because I'm not sure I could have right. done it. <laughs> you, knew, you wanted a rest day. I wanted a rest day. Uh, but, you know, it's just one of these, wow, uh, this is the way to go out about things. You know, right. I, I, I was reasonably good then. I certainly couldn't keep up with Alex, but I, you know, mm-hmm. we shared leads and it was it was just so much fun. And, you know, the valley's a, it's a low risk. Uh, we weren't going fast enough like this modern speed climbers that we would take horrendous falls or, you know, we all, you know, didn't have to worry about falling on the ledges and things or, or the flake. Uh, so it was, it was just one of those days in the mountains as a single day mm-hmm. that I, that I, I thought was pretty phenomenal. But then I had a great day last fall. And I climbed a 5.6 on the West Ridge of Kness with Jack Tackle. And we were, turned out, because the winds were blowing pretty hard when we were approaching it, nobody else was there. And, you know, almost 800 meters of climbing, but the rock is perfect, and the scenery is incredible. And we just moved, and it was great fun. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just, it doesn't have to be hard, but if you're in the right place in the mountains with the right person... I think I get more joy out of doing something like that than than uh, 
And, you know, Jack is another great guy to go in the mountains with. Those are the days probably that are the, the, the most joyful that I can, you know, that really stand out in my memory. Well, let me flip the question uh, around a little bit. And you mentioned, you know, I was talking about late talking. You sort of, I don't know if it's downplayed, but just more of it explained how it wasn't quite as out there as, as other stuff you've done. So do you have a, a moment that has become either a personal or even a, you know, a cautionary tale that you tell to anybody else where you, you maybe found yourself, you know, out there too far and, hey yeah you know, and, you know, whether it's like. With Jack last summer. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we went up to Clyde Minaret and didn't get an early enough start, so we camped too low below mm-hmm. it. And, uh, you know, I'm getting real old and slow and we, uh, the climbing on the, the you know, it's the one of the 50 crowd classics and uh we managed to do the route fine but we we got lost a couple of times and we got to the top and it was september mid-september days were a little bit short and it was starting to get dark and i think i had the coldest bivy of my, perhaps of my career and because we had underestimated the mountain given our current current skill level and so you have to adjust for whatever your skill level is at the time. I, mean, I was really cold, mm-hmm. and Jack was really cold, and uh, it was it was you know am I gonna stop shivering before morning? This is this will not be good. <laughs> and now it, it wasn't quite that bad, but it, it was very very uncomfortable. Not that I got any frostbite or anything, mm-hmm. but I was pushing it too close to the edge, and it's because. I'm, I need to be aware of what my skills are now compared to what they were then. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, that would have been no big deal. Uh, maybe. <laughs> That's well, pretty wild that you're still learning these things at this point in your climbing well, career. Well, but my you know? skill level is changing. Right. And my endurance level is changing, and it's not as good as it was. And that's okay. Right. It, doesn't mean it's, it doesn't mean it's less fun. I just have to understand where my, where my current limits are. You know, it's hard, to, it's hard to let go of the stuff that you were able to do in the past. Mm-hmm. As a climber, I look back, and, and the people who posted online for this look back and think George Lowe changed climbing in a lot of ways. Again, another podcast I roll just came across for the people who can't see us right now. So I guess this sort of answered my question, but I'll ask it anyway. But I mean, did you ever do a climb or again, have an experience that you felt like this is a pretty big deal? I mean, you sort of shot down lay talk is that big a deal, but did you ever have that or feel like, wow, I'm, I'm actually like approaching into, into, you know, some places that people haven't really gone before in terms of skill or commitment or any, any of those things. I mean, the North Twin to me comes in. North to Twin was close to that. Yeah. And I think Forker was fairly close to I, I mean, Latok was in the sense that we took on something that that was beyond what people were trying to do at the time. Although, you know, we had a lot of debates and Jeff wanted to go pure Alpine style. Uh, and I don't think we would have gotten very far with that because right. the weather was pretty, pretty bad at times. And there were enough, you know, there, weren't, there wasn't enough time enough long enough time period of good weather probably right especially since you didn't have good forecast but i think all of those were maybe comparable to what other people in the world were doing maybe mm-hmm. i don't know i sprout the north twin just now because um it's it's been said on here before but i've seen it i've i actually 
for it was actually kind of a turning point for me because I I kind of imagined that I was going to go with a buddy of mine and repeat um repeat the Blanchard route, mm-hmm. Blanchard Cheeseman route. Joke is is that literally within like forty five seconds of seeing the mountain because you can't see it on the approach. Right. I I was like yeah. you come up over Willie's shoulder, yeah, Willie's shoulder, say, like, whoa, <laughs> like gasping, you know, climbing yeah. your ass up that thing with a big pack on up to the scree. Yeah, and I was just like, no, this is it. And, you know, looking back now, it may have been the point where I'm, I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm not really, I don't even know if I'm cut out for anything even close to that. So I kind of imagine a George Lowe early 30s, maybe late 20s at that point. See, I was, I was uh, 30 then. Okay. I mean, uh, the audaciousness of thinking that you could climb that face, I think is, to me, is pretty astounding. And where that kind of like, I don't know, if what you want to call it comes from is 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 a pretty wild place. I mean, do you do you have any memories of of what sparked that in your brain? Who who did you Chris Jones? Chris Jones, yeah. yeah. Who is um, just a great partner. Yeah. I mean, Chris and maybe just, it was his idea. Do you have any? No, it was it was, yeah. it was it was I think that was my idea. Well, you know, I'd done Alberta. I'd seen it before. I'd done okay. Alberta with Jock Lydon and that had been a, a really fun climb for me. Mm-hmm. Uh that's a really good route, but if the ice field's still there, I right. mean, it would be just kitty litter uh, on the if the ice field's melted off. But that's a really good climb because the rock on the upper part is is quite good. And by the way, the rock on Northwind is a lot better than you might expect. The the, the ledges, yeah. I mean, you get the first thing off the ground. You know, it, it was really nice, beautiful, steep limestone with good pro. Then you get up the ledge where the glacier is, and it's got little patches of ice and pebbles and so on the dangerous places are the low angle right. ones so it wasn't uh yeah i was probably i i think i was probably pushing them probably harder than i should have at that point if that answers your question yeah i mean it does too it, it's an interesting mindset where i saw it and was like scared silly you're climbing on alberta it's over what you're left it's over it's yeah it's further west yeah but yeah, i mean, our, yeah, you're looking, you know, it's there behind you and you're yep. thinking like, well, this is fun, but look at that thing over there. Like that's, that's a, a cool. And, and, and again, back to this sort of ego thing of in, in a good way, you're like, I'm, I'm strong enough, powerful enough. You know, I can come back and, and try that thing over there while I ran tail, you know? So, um, I just lo- like to Man, think about those. You probably had better judgment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah who knows? Cause I mean, we were, we were yeah. pretty pushed on that. Right, the the right. weather was, the weather was pretty bad mm-hmm. and because uh, we had a lot of we had a moderate amount of snow we were on the route and then it was really stormy the day we summited and we had a, probably 30 centimeters of snow in the tent mm-hmm. uh, in the morning and we had one package of freeze-dried food left and that's closer to the edge than I would should have gone and I took 60 foot 60 foot fall <laughs> right oh yeah that's the edge <laughs> That's the edge. <laughs> Getting there. Well, you know, we're almost out of gear because we mm-hmm. we had to go to the top at some point. So it wasn't necessarily that uh, it was using good judgment. It was the only way we could get off the right. mountain because right. we didn't have enough gear to repel the whole thing. Because we dropped some stuff and and uh, I, I just don't think we could have gotten down it. And, and the, the crux at the top were... I'd go around the place I fell. Once I, when I fell on the thing, I pulled a critical piece, and it uh, was a tied off, tied off uh, piton, and of course it came off 
out loose and and uh, so that was gone mm-hmm. and uh, had to find another way to do it yeah that was that was pushing it all right that was, that was probably the closest you've reflected a bit on age you know as we've been talking uh, you know your two examples of learning even this late in the late in the game um from climbing so a couple things reflecting on your career and and what's going on now um comparatively is there somebody in the last like 20 years or a couple people that that you feel like either you would have loved to climb with or has accomplished things that that you sort of feel like are are um something that either impresses you or or is in the kind of like realm or style of something that you you actually are like wow that that was a that's what I believe in. That's what I think is is cool in terms of alpinists. That's a really interesting question because mm-hmm. I uh, bluntly I don't I don't track what's going on in climbing so much. Mm-hmm. I'm busy enough at work. Right. I have family. I do other things. I, I like to. I still like to to ski a lot. You know, I was down in mm-hmm. Ar- skiing in Antarctica. Get my last continent this this last November cool. and. Uh, I do a lot of, you know, I've done some long backcountry ski tours, which I still love doing. I have all these other activities, canyoneering, you know, backpacking with my daughters. Mm-hmm. I'd lot rather go do things and read about things. And so mm-hmm. if you ask me about who's really good. Uh, well, what about even folks you cross paths with? Maybe never got back to uh, to hitting up to do some climbing. Right? Well, I, I, I spent some time with Marco mm-hmm. in Slovenia. This spring, after we did a family bike ride there, uh, Preslek or however you uh, yeah, pronounce it, yeah, and you know, he's done an incredible number of things. He has a delightful spouse. He has a beautiful house, really nice kids, and he's an incredible host. It's one of those mixtures of people that you just don't see very often. He's phenomenal. And it was just a joy to be out in the mountains with him. So he's one of the people who I would have liked to, have, you know, I did a little bit of climbing with him there, but I would have liked mm-hmm. to be in the mountains with him. I mean, there are other people like Steve Swenson who just keeps climbing hard forever, right, right. or Mark Ritchie. I look at Mark Ritchie, and, you know, Mark is an incredibly successful businessman. You know, he built, he did all the woodwork for Apple headquarters. That's probably more impressive than any of the climbing he's done. And, you know, the guy's got one of the most impressive climbing records in the world. Uh, Both Steve and Mark had really good careers. Mark has this phenomenal thing. He's got a one megawatt windmill on. He's driving his wood factory, and he's done all the latest stuff. I mean, he's, he's, and he's got a great family. You know, Teresa is just a a wonderful woman and his daughter's delightful. And you know, those are the people that I that I really admire. The ones I admire are the ones who can manage a life outside of climbing that involves professional careers and families where they haven't left their families totally alone. And you know, I I to be fair to my families, I I spent way too much time in the mountains right uh and i think that that caused problems with liz who's who's a wonderful person uh and my first spouse we just we, you know wasn't a good match but but i was probably too selfish mm-hmm. you know mark seems to be able to balance that 
a lot better than I did. So I have, uh, or Tom Hornbein has. And Marco was, you know, I watched his family and it, it was, it was, it was just wonderful. So those are the one. that's the type of person that I, that I uh, probably admire most in the climbing community. But again, I don't do it. I can't keep mm-hmm. up on, well, I'm not interested in keeping up on the literature. Right. right. I don't do it. I don't climb for that reason. I climb because I, I climb and do all these other activities outside because I, it gives me great pleasure doing it. And, and I, you know, climbing the Grand Teton this, this summer with my daughter, Melissa, and, and watching her do her second trad lead just on the second pitch of the Ectrum Ridge and, and, and going up that thing and watching her adapt to the train. And that was just another one of those best climbs of your life. Just because watching her grow to be able to handle that situation, huge crowds, and you know she's managing to find her way up a mountain that she'd never done before, find the route, and you know she hadn't done this before, but it was just it was a joy to be there and and share that with her, and and those are the type of things that are more important to me than. You know, I did the hardest 515, and it's been done. Not that I don't admire these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of work you have to do to do a you know, climb at this 515 or whatever the top level is now is phenomenal, and I greatly admire the skill. But I admire even more those people who can do, that have our, our sort of Renaissance-type people who can manage and I haven't managed that nearly well enough. You know, I've been divorced twice, so that's not a very good <laughs> good example. You can't give me credit for doing well there. So any uh, anything on the plate? Oh, well, yeah, of course. I mean, there there's so many places that I haven't been. Right. I mean, just going to Antarctica, this wasn't mm-hmm. climbing, it was skiing. Right. But, I, but I, I enjoy skiing as much as I do climbing. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, that's fine. I, right now, I... <laughs> I'm a little bit falling short because I, uh, I don't know how long my knee is going to probably have a meniscus or something right. that, I, that I tore when I was trying to climb in Patagonia. Don't know. I mean, that's sort of, this was six or eight weeks ago. So I, I was just going to... So you were down climbing in Patagonia eight weeks ago? Uh, well, I, I went to Patagonia after I went to Antarctica because okay. I just visited right, Chantana right, right. on the way. And then we got seven and a half days of driving rain but still incredible hiking right uh we we got to see one of these giant red-headed woodpeckers when i was hiking through the langa forest so that was good too right on. <laughs> you know it's it's all of these things and i got to try gulame and i was too slow but anyway i got got to see fitzroy in in the uh in the blue skies i you know if, if I had one thing I'd like to do right now, I'd be Fitzroy, but I don't think I can get strong enough. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's such a beautiful peak. Well, awesome. Well, thanks a All lot right. for sitting down. This has been tremendous. And again, thanks for having me in your home. I'm glad we're not trying to do this outside right now. It's like <laughs> You wouldn't hear anything yeah, yeah, other exactly. than the wind. <laughs> it's pr- pretty loud out there. So, But yeah, thanks so much. You're and, welcome. And, uh, the time is really appreciated. I hope it's valuable for... For your listeners. Yeah, well, they'll let me know, and I'm I'm sure it's going to be. So thanks again. (laughs) Okay, you're welcome.
All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to George for having me up to his place, sitting down, being so forthcoming. And if you head over to normancast.com, I've posted a gallery of uh, photos that Michael Kennedy sent me from his vast, vast collection, which he's been going through of late and digitizing a lot of stuff. And he sent me over some amazing, amazing old pictures of him and George in their adventures in Alaska and Latok. And of course, while you're there, click on the Help Out tab or stop by the shop. Okay, folks, as George said, he survived with a lot of luck with some pretty good decisions here and there, and of course, paying attention all the time. So, what that means is, among other things, check your knots. Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Huh? What trouble? 